Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you on yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you off and your people with persistence, and you would have been cut off of the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name will be proclaimed to all the earth. You are now exalting yourself against my people and will not let me go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as have never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send and get your livestock and all that you have have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die, and then the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. Then there, then there the hail and the fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down in every plant of the field and broke every tree in the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is, in the, is right, and I am, and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and shall stay no longer. Moses said to them, As soon as I... As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch my hands to the Lord, and thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the mar- barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer was not struck down, because it was late coming up. So Moses went out of the city of Pharaoh and struck his hands upon the earth. But then Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the earth had ceased. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. This is God's word. Amen. You keep your Bibles open to Exodus 9 as we pray this morning. Would you pray with me? O oh, great God of highest heaven, we pray that you would glorify yourself in our midst this morning, and that as we open your word, as we drink deeply from the book of Exodus this morning, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your voice. We pray that you would give us wisdom as we are seeking wisdom in your word today. We pray that as we seek you and seek to be in your presence this morning, that you would make yourself abundant in this place and by your spirit, we would leave this place knowing you more and celebrating and rejoicing in you and in your gospel more than when we came into the, into the building this morning. God, I pray that as I stand in this pulpit, that you would lay aside 
all that distracts, that you would lay aside all the inadequacy that I bring. And that, Lord, you would glorify yourself in me this morning. God, we are thankful for your word. And thankful for the fact that we can come together and drink from it and rejoice in it. And we're thankful for your son, in whose name we pray and praise. Amen. Well, good morning. Today we have an ambitious goal set before us. I think that's an understatement. Because our aim this morning is to cover nearly four chapters of the book of Exodus. So I hope that you brought a lunch with you because... You think that they would go easy on the rookie. But even though the story of uh, the plagues that God poured out on Egypt is a sizable chunk of Bible, uh, all of it works together to communicate a central message. And so I'm excited to have the opportunity to walk through it with you this morning. We're going to hone in more specifically on the passage that Avalon read to us this morning from Exodus 9, starting in verse 13. But we're going to be drawing on the whole of the plague narratives uh, from the book of Exodus. In the passage that we looked at last week, Moses and Aaron confronted the Pharaoh with the same demand that they had already brought to him from the Lord once before, that he free the Hebrew people from their slavery in order that they can go and worship him outside of Egypt. And they've been sent by God himself to to bring this message to Pharaoh, and they've been empowered by God this time to do a miracle because God has promised to deliver his people. He has given his word that he will do this thing and that he will deliver his people from their bondage, bondage in Egypt. But even after Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh, where it is transformed miraculously into a snake, the answer is still no. And I can't help but think that that must have been kind of an awkward scene for Moses and for Aaron. Because at this point in the story, at this point in the narrative, it seems like Moses has finally got a little bit of confidence. He's doubted along the way whether or not he's the right man for the job and whether or not uh, what God has promised is really going to happen through him and through his leadership. And he's wondered along the way uh, just how things are going to unfold. But this time God has given him and his brother Aaron the ability uh, to do this miraculous sign before Pharaoh to confirm that this command is from the Lord. And so you, you, you picture the scene where, uh, you know, Aaron casts down his staff and you feel like Moses must at this point be thinking like, it's a sure thing at this point. He's like the basketball player who, who shoots the three-pointer and is so confident that it's going to be a swish that he turns around and starts walking to the other end of the court Meanwhile, behind him, he has no idea that the ball has sailed past the basket and hit a a popcorn vendor in the face. And that's basically what what is happening here in this scene. Pharaoh is steadfast. He will not free the people. Even in the face of this miracle, this miraculous sign that he has just witnessed, he will not free the Hebrew people. And that is because of the problem he identifies in chapter 5, verse 2, when he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so, as God promised in the passage that we studied last week, he begins unleashing signs and wonders throughout the land of Egypt. The issue here is that Pharaoh does not know God. He has no relationship with God, and instead he thinks of himself as a God. Pharaoh, along with the people 
of Egypt believe that the king, the pharaoh, the person in charge of this land is divine and that his father before him was divine and is now ruling alongside the other Egyptian deities in the afterlife. The people of Egypt look to their pharaoh as the link that connects them and the world they live in with the gods. So Pharaoh is not motivated to hear the command of the God of the Hebrew people. But on top of that, why should Pharaoh be taking orders from the God of these people, of all people? He doesn't deny that they have a God or that their God is real, but surely he must be not a very good one if he's allowed his people to fall into slavery. The God of these people must be weak. Why should he be obeyed? if he has allowed his people to endure this sort of suffering. Meanwhile, the Egyptian gods, along with Pharaoh himself, are very confident. They must be worthwhile. They must be worth listening to because they have led the nation of Egypt into a, a, a position of power. They're the most advanced, most powerful nation on the scene, and no one rivals their might. And so it seems like the gods of Egypt are powerful and faithful to lead their people in prosperity. Every single year, like clockwork, the God that oversaw the Nile River, the the lifeblood of the people of Israel, uh, would make sure that the Nile flooded, like clockwork, every single year, so that the Egyptian crops would flourish every year. The gods of Egypt maintained the delicate, delicate balance of life in Egypt, as they had for thousands of years, in order to bring them to this place. And the chief of their gods, Amon Ra, raises the sun every single day and has never failed not once to bring light to the kingdom of Egypt. Pharaoh doesn't know the God of the Hebrew people, and he is not interested in getting to know him at all because surely he must not be worth knowing anyway. And so the plagues or the signs that God has promised begin in his court. Before his very eyes, he sees Aaron's staff transformed into a snake. Yahweh does this thing before the eyes of the king of Egypt. But Pharaoh's magicians, the the people that are in his court, are able to emulate the miracle and, uh, uh, you know, copy it somehow. And so Pharaoh is unimpressed. Never mind the fact that the snake that they conjure is swallowed up by the snake that Yahweh conjures in subtle foreshadowing of what is to come. And so in the first plague, God begins by turning the Nile River into blood. But Pharaoh does not relent. Second, God brings swarms of frogs into Egypt, frogs by the thousands and millions. But Pharaoh does not relent. Because each time, Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate the miraculous display. They're able to conjure things on their own. And so Pharaoh is unimpressed. He is unthreatened. But when God brought swarms of gnats into Egypt in the third plague, the magicians were stumped. They they couldn't conjure gnats out of thin air. And they, com- they comment to Pharaoh in chapter 8, this is the finger of God at work. But still, Pharaoh will not listen. Even though members of his court are beginning to uh, be dismayed by the things that God is doing, Pharaoh himself will not listen. And so God sends Moses back to Pharaoh and warns him about what is coming next. An ocean of flies. Flies that will fill every house and cover the ground. But in the land of Goshen, where the Hebrew people live, there will be no flies. It is a promise of a miraculous thing that God will do. 
but still Pharaoh is not scared. So when the swarms arrive, he summons Moses and Aaron because at least at this point he's confused, if not scared, about what's happening. And he is sick of the flies at this point. I, I don't like flies. I don't like one fly in my house, and so I can't imagine what it would be like for the ground to be crawling with flies. I can't imagine that. And then I can't imagine looking you know, at the land where the Hebrew people live and seeing that there are none. Surely that would be confusing to Pharaoh at this point, if not a little frustrating. And so he summons Moses and Aaron and says to them in chapter 8, go and worship your God. Finally, it seems like he is relenting. Go and worship your God, but don't go far. But as soon as the flies were removed, as soon as they left and flew, flew away because the, the hand of the Lord cast them out, as soon as they left, just as in the passage that we're looking at today from chapter 9, Pharaoh changed his mind and did not let the people go. And so by the time we get to the fifth and sixth plague, the stakes are getting high. And rather than sending a pest to annoy Pharaoh, God strikes down the livestock of all the Egyptians throughout the land and afflicts every Egyptian with painful boils. So we've, we've crossed a line somewhere from something that is an annoyance to something that is going to cause genuine problems and, and, and real physical pain for the people of Egypt. He warned Pharaoh, though, and the rest of Egypt that he was going to do this. But the hour came and the hour went, and Pharaoh still refused. And at this point, we're beginning to wonder, what in the world is Pharaoh thinking? Like at this point, his magicians have failed to be able to replicate the things that they were able to do in the beginning, right? And, and, and we've seen God make clear lines of division between what he is pouring out on the Egyptians and what he is withholding from his own people, miraculous things that God is proving to Pharaoh. And we're wondering, how is he able to continue to defy the command of Yahweh? Even if he does think that he is a God, even if he's still convinced that he is a God, hasn't he realized by now that he's met his match? With each successive plague, it seems less and less likely that Pharaoh will continue to defy God. Isn't he worn down yet? Hasn't his resolve been worn down yet? I think that this is how often the story of the plagues is portrayed in, in movies and things like this. This is the way that we often understand the plague narrative. God is on a mission, it would seem, to get Pharaoh to see sense and to recognize that the right thing to do is to free these people and let them go worship their God. Just a few years ago, uh, yet another film version of these events was released. And uh, I, I don't know whether you saw it a few years ago, but let me tell you, it was a doozy. It was just, just terrible. And over the course of 90 or so minutes in this movie, the battle of good and evil unfolds for us. And it's, you know, there's lots of special effects and, uh, you know, great acting and things like this, whatever. It's great. But if, you, if you're familiar at all with the biblical narrative, the movie is nothing short of just confusing. In the movie, Pharaoh is arrogant and prideful just as he is in the, the, the passage that we're studying this morning. But as the weeks of infestations and illnesses wear on, cracks begin to appear in his resolution against Moses. Yahweh, meanwhile, in, in this movie, is portrayed as someone frustrated that he must endure this battle with Pharaoh. 
And with each successive plague, he is sure that this time Pharaoh will break. This time it will work. Because after all, he's well past plan B, and now he's you know, on to plan G or something. He's gone through several phases of plans in order to get to the point where now he's sure this is the one that's going to work. But we miss, I think we miss the central message of these chapters of Scripture if we see God as one who is frustrated and bewildered about how to free his people. Instead, in chapter 9, verse 12, we read that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to Moses as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is exactly what God intended. The king's heart is a stream of water, we read in Proverbs 21, in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God is doing what he intends here. He is not frustrated or perplexed about why things are going the way that they're going. This is exactly what God has planned, what he has intended, and what he has promised to Moses and 400 years earlier to Abraham. Pharaoh was not overwhelming the plans of God in refusing to free the people. Instead, he is a tool in the hand of God, being used to accomplish all that he intends. God spells out his goal, why he's doing what he's doing, in the passage that we're looking at this morning in chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. He commands Moses to confront Pharaoh again, and that he is to say again, let my people go. Something Moses is getting really good at saying. Let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. No part of this is accidental. From the very beginning, God told Moses that it was not going to work, that plans A through G or whatever were not going to work. Pharaoh would not listen. God had promised this to Moses, that Pharaoh would not comply. And so through these signs and wonders, or through these plagues, in this powerful, awe-inspiring, fear-inducing, humbling display, God is making himself known. He is putting himself on display for Pharaoh for the people of Egypt, for God's people, the Hebrews, and for the entire world who is watching. God is not merely focused on the redemption of Israel. He is not merely focused on rescuing these people from slavery in Egypt. His purposes span the globe. And he is acting in such a way that the news of his presence will be proclaimed everywhere to everyone. He is addressing the central issue of the human heart, the problem that plagued not only the people of Egypt and Pharaoh, but his own people, which Pharaoh summarizes for us when he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. God is addressing the problem that people do not know him, and therefore his word is not obeyed. And so... The plague narratives, we should see in them abundant grace. After all, he could have, 
absolutely annihilated Egypt off the face of the earth if he had wanted to, a detail that he reminds Pharaoh of in 9.15. He reminds Pharaoh, if I had wanted to, I could have snapped my fingers and you would be just dust blowing in the wind. It is a bizarre juxtaposition to recognize that God is pouring out judgment on Egypt because he is gracious. God's judgment is being poured out while he is graciously welcoming Egypt and the world to know him and to know his name. There are five things. I think, I think there are five things in the plague narratives that God intends the world to learn about him. So we'll walk through these five things together. First, Yahweh is the Lord and he has no rival. Pharaoh thought that he was a god. He thought that all the pharaohs that had come before him were gods, and, and he's in the lineage of this divine family, and so he assumes a posture of defiant pride when he is confronted. He doesn't explicitly deny that there are other gods out there or that the Hebrews have a god of their own, but he does assume that he is basically invincible in the face of the god of the Hebrew people. And so God sets out to free his people, while at the same time eviscerating the notion that any man or any god, any idol, could be his rival. The gods of Egypt will be crushed by the time it's all said and done. And even though the magicians in Egypt are able to mimic his power, Aaron's snake has already swallowed theirs. God will rule. He will crush anyone who defies and thinks of themselves as his equal. So on day one, Yahweh demonstrates his control of the Nile River by turning it to blood. It is the artery of life for Egypt and the realm of one of the Egyptian gods. It's such an important part of Egyptian life that there was a god whose entire job was to oversee and care for and provide through the Nile River. And so with this and other plagues, God is systematically dismantling the Egyptian pantheon. He is dismantling the belief structure that Egypt had built itself on and established its pride through. And all of this culminates in the ninth plague when God blocks out the sun. Because the chief of all the Egyptian gods was Amun-Ra, who was the god of the sun. And he is defeated in the ninth plague without a fight. God is putting his power on display, just as he promised that he would. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people. Secondly, I think the one thing, we're, the, the second thing I think we're supposed to learn about who God is in this passage is that Yahweh is unique. After the infestation of frogs had subsided, Moses comments to Pharaoh that, uh-oh, this is, I'm sorry, excuse me, just before the infestation of frogs uh, ends, Moses comments to Pharaoh that he will remove them so that you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Egypt, like most ancient, cultured, ancient cultures, had gods for just about everything. They had a god of the Nile and a god of the sun, a god of death, gods that were represented by just about every animal uh, that lived in Egypt, every animal that they were familiar with. They even had a frog goddess. And so 
in, in a way, would seem that you know God is proving that he rules even frogs, even though the Egyptians had a God for that. Each God was believed to be responsible for certain things, and each had control of various parts of life. And on top of that, Pharaoh, uh, each successive Pharaoh thought of himself as divine, as we've already said. And so through the plagues, Yahweh is challenging that notion. And in various ways, he is proclaiming that there is none like me in all the earth. As I was thinking about this and thinking about the things in our frame of reference that are often imitated or often copied or emulated, <laughs> I couldn't help thinking about uh, Elvis. And, um, you know, there's a million Elvis impersonators out there. And, and I'm sure that some of them are probably really good. You know, some of them have really dedicated a lot of time to, you know, getting the voice down just right and uh, maybe learning Elvis's story, his background. Maybe they've dedicated a lot of time uh, to making sure that they know every lyric of every song. Maybe they have the perfect costume for whichever phase of Elvis's life best matches their girth. Maybe they are so committed to the act that they think that they have some connection with Elvis that other people don't. But at the end of the day, every Elvis impersonator is just not Elvis. And the idols and the kings masquerading as gods in Egypt and around the world are not God. Pharaoh is condemned for exalting himself among God's people, which has brought upon him the judgment of Yahweh. There is no one like our God. There is no one worthy of praise like God. Third, Yahweh is the creator. He uses the natural world as an implement of judgment in freeing his people from Egypt. Everything from frogs and flies and the sun and stars are under his command. And in the seventh plague, he creates a, a, a hailstorm in the desert, the likes of which Egypt had never seen before. If God had desired it, if he desired it now, he could make it snow in the Sahara Desert, which actually happened a few weeks ago. He could make the sun stand still in the sky or dry up an ocean that his people might cross on dry land. He can do these things because he is the master of the created order. He made all these things, and he can use them to accomplish his purposes. The hailstorm that ripped through Egypt obviously got Pharaoh's attention. Hail can be a scary thing. I, I don't know how much it hails here in New England, uh, but back in Texas, we got a fair number of hailstorms every year. And a, a friend of mine in college, her car was actually totaled by hail. Like, it was literally not drivable after this hailstorm had, had driven, uh, you know, passed through. Uh, every window was smashed out. And they were, I mean, hailstones the size of softballs had just battered this car to the point that it wasn't even recognizable anymore. Hailstorms can be scary or even, you know, harmful, deadly even, as this one was. In Egypt, everything that was outside was struck down from people and livestock to every tree in the land was knocked down by this terrifying, terrible hailstorm. And so Pharaoh summons Moses again. And after enduring the worst storm in the history of the country, he says, there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. And I think that must be the understatement of the century. For perhaps the first time ever, for this Pharaoh or any Pharaoh, he acknowledges that he has sinned. 
we should not miss or pass over the magnitude of that detail that's included for us in this passage. This man who thinks himself a god admits that he has sinned. The hail has weakened his pride. And so as he pleads with Moses, he asks that God would relent of this hailstorm. And so Moses replies, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. The earth and everything in it belongs to Yahweh, not to Pharaoh. Fourth, God will accomplish all that he intends. God told Moses how things were going to play out before any of this got underway. And in the passage that we looked at last week, that Pastor Brandon walked us through last week, God promised to Moses that Pharaoh would not listen, but that he, God, would lay his hand on Egypt and bring out his people. So none of this, as we know, none of this has come as a surprise. Every part of it, from beginning to end, every detail has happened according to, will, to the will of God as he does what he intends. He proclaims in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Nothing has happened that does not conform to the will of God. Even Pharaoh's disobedience was part of God's plan. No detail is so small that he does not account for it, and no circumstance is so large that he cannot master it. In everything in Egypt, in everything from these chapters in the Bible, in everything from the whole of Scripture, in everything on every day that has ever taken place, God is at work and is sovereign. A sparrow does not fall out of the sky apart from the will of the Father, and the rise and fall of nations do not defy him. He hardens the heart of Pharaoh, while at the same time softening the hearts of others. Some hear the warning that Moses offers them about the hailstorm that is coming. The most terrifying storm that Egypt has ever seen is coming, this time tomorrow. And they rush out to shelter their animals and their families. Because some of these people are beginning to understand just who Moses is speaking for. Some of these people are hearing the message that God is sending, and they are afraid. Lastly, God is the sanctuary that all people need. The word of the Lord came to Egypt, and it would be followed by a terrible storm. In chapter 9, some of the Egyptians had seen enough to realize that the God of the Hebrews was a man of his word. And the storm of God's judgment was coming. And the shelter that they needed was in hearing and obeying the word of God. Many in Egypt, including Pharaoh, do not listen. And when the storm comes, there is nothing to be done. Their livestock, their workers, their families are all caught unaware by the storm, and they are all struck down by the hail. So by grace and according to his will, God spares the Hebrews from the storm because God himself is the shelter that will protect people from his righteous judgment. 
In various ways throughout the plagues, God has yanked the rug of self-preservation out from underneath the Egyptians. The walls of protection that they had built around themselves and fortified their lives with were coming down. And even the most powerful and advanced nation that the world has yet seen is vulnerable before the Lord. And in the, faith, in the face of his wrath, only his hand can provide safety. In the plague narrative, God is making himself known. That's a, des- that's a, a message that we desperately need to hear because we are awfully good at acting like Egyptians. In sin and with much pride, we build up fortifications in our lives. We are good at believing in self-reliance. We are confident in our abilities, in our jobs, our bank accounts, our homes, our families, our medical technology, whichever cause or political affiliation that we align with, we are confident in these things. And it is in the midst of this confidence that God is reminding us who he is and how fragile those things really are. Our natural position is to respond with arrogance, just as Pharaoh did to the command of Christ. He bids us follow him and know him and call him Lord. And we reply, nah, I've got this, thanks. I've got things under control. I've set all these things up in my life that are not going to fail me, and so I'm confident. But a storm is coming, one of judgment. The wrath of God is coming, and Christ is the shelter that we need. At the cross, God's wrath is poured out, and at the same time, his people are protected. At the meeting place of God's judgment and his love and grace, we find protection in Christ through the cross. Christ shields us from his own just answer to our sin by taking our place. And in this, he makes himself known as the God who is the Lord, who is unique, who is the maker and keeper of all things, and who will accomplish what he wills who is our shelter, who is both just and loving. The promise of the plagues is one of both love and justice. Judgment for sin and a way out. Even though Pharaoh admits to sin in this passage, it is not a genuine repentance. As soon as the storm recedes, as soon as the hail stops falling, he is sinning again. And he relents of his word that he will free the people to go worship. And he decides to change his mind and keep them in Egypt. He still does not know the Lord. Even though the Lord has revealed himself. Because the Lord is not through with him yet. God is still making himself known in Egypt at this point in the story. He is still addressing the central issue that the world does not know him and does not know his name, has not experienced his presence or his power. And we recognize, as we read through the plague narratives, we recognize our role in the events of the Exodus. It is the same 
as Moses, the Hebrew and the Egyptian people, and the generations which will follow. Tell the story of God and stand in awe. Tell the story of God and worship together. Tell the story of God to one another and to the world and lift his name on high. Because we have seen the Lord and because we know his name. Because he has made himself known. Because at the meeting place of his righteous justice and his love, we are called his sons and daughters. We tell the story of the Lord. We know his name and we worship. We echo the words of Isaiah 26. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Will you pray with me? God, your word convicts. Your word lays bare all the things in our lives that we try to hide from you. We acknowledge this morning we have a lot in common with Pharaoh. So we pray, Lord, we pray with fear and trembling that you would break us of our pride. We pray that in this place and as we depart from this place, having opened your word together, that we would remind ourselves that we would preach the gospel to ourselves and remember that we desperately needed a Savior. We were beyond saving ourselves, and so you came for us. God, give us hearts of humility that hear the gospel and weep with broken hearts that we rebel against you, but praise you in spirit and truth because we have been saved. God, we're thankful this morning. So we come before you now lifting your name because your name and your renown are the desire of our souls.